everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into Houston folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham. Today we're going to be discussing, in continuation with our theme on ideologies, conservatism and liberalism. And we're doing those together because uh, they're the two primary ideologies in the world at the moment. And they um, kind of need to be discussed in relation to each other because they kind of have created each other and interbled. And it's a bit confusing, but we're going to get through it. But before we get there, I have a few retractions that I need to make. Um, last episode, we did the introduction of, idea, of the ideas behind ideologies yeah. and um, trying to introduce them where they came from. And we made some claims that were not entirely true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... Uh, In fact, I didn't make any claims that were entirely I, true. You did. Well, I don't think I did. I don't think I made any claims because I was really... Uh, let me... Okay. So in the uh, discussion we had about ideologies in ancient Greece, when we were going through the uh, creation of ideologies, I had stated that Athens won. Now, what I was referring to when I said that Athens won was the ideological conflict between Athens and Sparta. Um, oh, what a scapegoat. Sparta won the war. Now, Spart- now, what the war we're talking about here is the Peloponnesian War, which was a conflict between Athens and Sparta, which Sparta won, hands down, and turned Athens into a vassal state uh, and severely weakened it. But at the same time, Sparta severely weakened the entirety of Greece while it was in the Peloponnesian War and the conflict was carrying on, which is what allowed... Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, to come down and cause a lot of nonsense in Greece. And those who remember from their history lessons will note that the uh, son of Philip II, Alexander the Great, one of the greatest empire builders in human history, was tutored by noted Athenian Aristotle, who uh, was the student of Plato and who was in turn the student of Socrates. All three of all three of whom, although they had differing opinions on democracy, favored civic republicanism to one extent or another, or, you know, believed that political legitimacy came from the people rather than from strength. So um, what you're saying is ideologically... Athens won. Sparta lost. Ideologically, Sparta lost because because Athens was destroyed... Um, as an empire, and Sparta was allowed to take over. That allowed the Macedonians to take over, which allowed Alexander the Great to take over. But also, on the other hand, those ideas had already spread to a little-known city um, in the Italian peninsula called Rome, which uh, embraced its own form of civic republicanism. So um, I know I didn't make myself entirely clear, um, and thank but you. For- that's because you were wrong, and now you're trying to use the fine print. <laughs> you're trying to enter backpedal. some fine print into the contract after it's been signed. <laughs> Backpedal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you to Tom, um, our dear friend at uh, Agora, for pointing that out to me in the first place. Um, but that also leads me to just another point that I'd like to make. Um, and this is something that might come up often in this podcast as a whole, is that Brock and I are both political scientists, um, which means from an academic point of view, we tend to take a very long-term view of things. And so when we say like, oh, uh, this person won or this ideological thing won, we, we kind of sometimes mean, you know, it won over a 300, 400-year period. It's very rare to find a political scientist who uh, will, you know, make a, a prediction that's any shorter than 15 years into the future because, you know, shorter than that, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen, um, which is exactly why most political scientists didn't predict Donald Trump. Um, (laughs) But on that note, I also have had a few people who have said to me on Facebook, you know, that we were guilty of making the claim that, you know, everything's going to be all right under Donald Trump. And what about all the people who are now scared and fearing for their lives? And I think as two white males who don't live in America, um, we can kind of be a bit blasé about that. But when we say like, oh, well, Donald Trump is not going to be a huge factor on international relations or, you know, it might have this slight change to the international world. You know, we are often talking about it in 
very long terms. You know, we're talking about 50, 60 years from now. Um, but I would like yeah. to say that we, we are very open and considerate of the people who are very scared under Donald Trump's... Uh, but I thought we made that clear in the episode, and um, I think we admitted our disenchantment and our detachment from that scenario. Yeah, um, I, d- I just wanted to make it clear, you know, for future reference, that, that that's often what we're going to do is make these kind of very broad claims because that's how political scientists operate. Um, but yeah. <laughs> to stop us from getting into too much trouble. Yeah, exactly. Although we fail, I mean, political scientists as a whole failed to predict the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall or the end of the Soviet Union. So maybe we don't know what we're fucking talking about. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> last little retraction, uh, which is again an example of, you know, why we don't care about specifics, we care about long-term trends, <laughs> is the fact that uh, during our Trump episode, I stated that, uh, you know, Obama had managed to pass his uh, Obamacare legislation despite opposition from the House. Now, when Obama actually passed Obamacare, uh, it was with a democratically elected House. Um, sorry, democratically elected. A democratic um, House. The, both the Senate and the House of Representatives were dominated by... Um, the Democrats. Now, obviously, he had a lot of pushback after that when in the next um, elections for the Senate and, and Congress, the Republicans took over. Uh, but yeah, that was a mistake. So I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, it's okay to not be an expert in American politics. I think many Americans are not experts in their own politics. Yeah, I agree. But we shan't be making these mistakes again. Well, I'll try I think I have to take responsibility as well because even though I wasn't a history scholar, something in the back of my mind pricked up when you said that Athens won the war and I doubted it. But I, I didn't I have the guts the to call you out on it. I meant it. And I, I should have actually <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I knew you I knew you meant the ideological battle. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so before we get into it, let's just quickly do our podcaster of the month. And that is um Dominic Perry who does the Egyptian History Podcast. Now, I don't, I'm sure you guys saw recently, there's a new movie out with Tom Cruise, uh, The Mummy, another monster movie, which I think looks pretty cool from the trailer. Um, so this might be a good time for you to brush up on your Egyptian history so that you can be that guy who says, like, well, actually... Um, or that lady. Or that lady, yeah. Um, don't be sexist, Peter, God. So uh, he discusses... Um, the Egyptian history from the earliest days of human evolution and migration all the way up to the fall of Rome, which is pretty cool. Um, and obviously discusses very important people such as Cleopatra and Ptolemy and all those people who are very important to Egyptian history. But this is not an Egyptian history podcast. Some of the most, some of the most fascinating ancient history yep. that you could read about or learn about is definitely coming out of Egypt. So. We highly recommend that. Yeah, so go have a listen to it. Um, it's obviously on Agora and the Acast app. Um, so yeah, but let's get into it now. Brock, uh, let's start with conservatism, which is... Why Why do we start with conservatism? We start with conservatism because I think, and this is, this is a claim that could possibly be um, debated, but I think just for the sake of you know, some clarity, conservatism is historically precedent to liberalism. Um, I think if anything, liberalism came out of conservatism. So let's begin with that. That's why I want to begin with it. But what we're going to be doing is firstly, we're going to be discussing what these things really are, because conservatism gets a very bad rap from uh, the from the world in general. Um, so maybe you should give an example of some uh, popular culture that espouses conservative values that um, that people don't normally agree with, or at least it's not it's no longer popular to agree with them. Um, um, yeah. So I think that uh, the first thing that comes comes to mind is uh, the Patriot by Mel Gibson. Um, or actually, um, even Braveheart. Braveheart is super conservative. It's you know, it's people standing up for their traditional way of life against um, a tyrant, against somebody who is coming to take that life away from them. The same as in Patriot. You know, he's standing up for traditional values and their way of life and what they've come to understand, and they don't want change. Um, and that, you know, those are conservative values that I think. 
a large amount of people wouldn't necessarily have a problem agreeing with this. You know, you see them in the movies and you recognize, oh yeah, like the Scottish are the good guys and the English are the bad guys. Um, and that's, that's, that's good. But I've, I think what a lot of people disagree with these days is the concept of holding on to the past forever. Um, for, you know, an well, indefinite amount of time. The, the thing about those two films, I'm glad you mentioned those two Mel Gibson films because I think they're good examples. We'll come back to them, but there, there are slight nuances there that, that can sometimes trick one. I think if you had to go too hardcore into William Wallace's life or into the strict history of um, the War of Independence or American Independence, you'd find that it's, it's, they were strictly conservative battles that they wanted to preserve traditional ways of life. Mm. But at the time, you know, when those movies were made in the 90s, liberalism was very strong. It was difficult to sell a film or to sell a hero without having strong liberal traits. Now, typically, it's difficult to be conservative and a revolutionary, mm. which is what Mel Gibson's characters in both films are. They're revolutionaries. Yet, if you had to ask them individually in their own historical time period, what is the purpose of your actions? Why do you fight the fight why do you pick these battles they would not be saying to to revolutionize the system yeah Uh, you know we want to change life forever no we want to keep life the same and that's all that conservatism is Mm. and that's um where political where classic idea political ideology comes from Mm. is how do we preserve the good parts of our political behavior our political life yeah liberalism came after that but before we we before liberalism was born there was a strong sense of let's not change for change's sake. Let, mm. We're not opposed to change per se, but we're not going to accept change um, because it's too risky. Yeah. We need to slowly adapt um, and find safe ways um, to, to change at a slow pace so that we don't make the risks um, that are associated with unintended consequences mm. or that could, that could risk our, uh, the moral fiber of our society. We don't want to just um, wholly embrace these revolutionary changes that could have very severe effects on society that, um, before we've tested them, before we've seen how they work. And uh, the good example you used last in, in the last episode was if a doctor discovers cancer, uh, discovers cancer, if they discover mm-hmm. the cure to cancer, and they run out in the street shouting Eureka, a conservative would say, hang on, let's not, em- let's not embrace this immediately, wholeheartedly. Let's first run a few more tests. Let's... M- and let's not do away with the um, with the therapeutic means we already have established in the practice of medicine to treat cancer patients. Mm. Um, let's t- take the, this change quite slowly. Mm. Um, you know, whereas of course the liberal would be different. So the although um, those films, you know, make the heroes out to be quite revolutionary, conservatism is not in itself revolutionary. In fact, the princi- it, it is associated with right wing politics. But the values it holds more closely are the preservation of human society, mm. the, the traditional uh, values, traditional morals, personal wealth, personal ownership, private ownership, and individualism, um, well, believing in the strength of the person. Yeah, and I think well, before we get into it too, too much murky water, it's important to note that conservatism has been around for the last seven, eight hundred years as a political ideology. Um, you know, it was born in England, really, um, by by the lords and ladies f- who were not fighting, but were antagonized against the king's power. So conservatism at its heart is still a it, it is still a quest for for autonomy, for political autonomy. But it doesn't want to it doesn't want to rock the boat. So, for instance, the. Uh, the, the person for whom this podcast is named, Thomas Hobbes, who wrote uh, The Leviathan, is the arch-conservative. He calls that it, it is better to have a Leviathan state where a sovereign has complete control over every aspect of your life than to have no state at all. And that really leads... And, you know, obviously the liberals are like, no, that's crazy. It's all crazy, you know. Nah. And anarchists are like, no, fuck that shit. But... Thomas Hobbes had seen what revolution can do to a country because he had just, they've just come out of the Civil War. They just come out of a period of very, um, poli- you know, huge political upheaval in England and it had done a huge amount of damage to the country. So it's not surprising that he stated that it's better to have stability 
than it is to have chaos. And that is because conservatives make fundamental assumptions about human nature, um, which is the basis on which all conservative beliefs are founded. And the first but the first foundation is about human nature, and that is that humans are inherently violent, um, that given the chance, we will enter into conflict over, you know, anything, resources, uh, people, uh, land, or even ideological differences, uh, religion, or whatever. And this was obviously said by Hobbes in that he said in a state of nature, which is a state of chaos, uh, life is quick, nasty, brutish, and short. And, the, you know, human beings are necessarily violent and conflictual creatures, and that the state needs to come in and help that out. But there's another assumption that they make about history, and that Just is... Just before you get to that assumption... Yeah. Hold on to that. The, that that's a very important point about the, the conflict between human individuals that these political philosophers uh, mention and... and uh, discuss is because it because it gives birth to the state as we know it, and because you know people like uh, Edmund Burke contributed so strongly to the um, the thought behind the Treaty of Westphalia, which mm. is, which gave us the the state as we know it today. It was in protecting people from that conflict through the creation of a, of, an, of a state, mm. and that state they understood would only survive if there was an identity of a nation. So we saw through conservatism, through conservative values and beliefs about the human person, we saw the birth of a nation. Mm. Um, and a nation, you know, nations had existed before the state, but now with the apparatus of the state, with the state in uh, having been formed and was, uh, having been born, the nation came to a, a fruition, came to embody a lot more than it had previously. And so we had people who were, who were traditionally concerned with preserving society and preserving certain values. They would rely on the state and they would use what would become a, a certain type of conservatism, was to, conservatism, which is called nationalism, yeah. um, to preserve the identity of the nation and to sort of slow down any unwarranted progress in society or any unwarranted – I don't want to say progress because that's got a, a positive connotation. We say any unwarranted change. Yeah. Um, so normally you'd find nationalists – they're not necessarily against change. They have their own uh, ideals for change. But that if somebody really wants things to not, uh, you know, if they don't want to, for example, embrace globalization too quickly, they'd normally espouse the values of a nationalist, which yeah. were derived from very old conservative values. A nationalism is is a certain type of conservatism taken to its... Well, I wouldn't say it's because you get very beneficial forms of nationalism. Um, yeah. I would say fascism is nationalism taken to its extreme. And, you know, fascism tends to be very conservative in its in its viewpoints. You know, look at Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, or um, the totalitarian Japan, all very much looking back to, the, to, to a previous history. But also that's... Yeah. Yeah, and to and to bring to bring in some popular cultural reference or something from from Hollywood, um, perhaps a good nationalist film that one could watch to to see. Well, I think it, to get a good idea of nationalist values, you can watch any military film. Yeah, any f film about about war, but uh, that views war in a positive light, especially one where the where the principles of military conflict and defense. Are, are, are protected, like for example in A Few Good Men, where yeah. Tom Cruise, this hotshot lawyer, has to prosecute um, a general, or I don't know if he actually is a general, but Jack Nicholson plays a, a high no, military a authority, uh, yeah, in um, in the United States, and he's guilty of some bad stuff, and he in, he personifies the nationalist mindset of uh, territorial defense and national integrity and making sure that the military does all the dirty work that the average civilian would need it, the military to do in order to be protected and to stay safe. Yeah. And it's also interesting, this idea that, you know, if you take away the state, what you have left is chaos. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to use the term anarchy because anarchism is a whole other thing that we will get to eventually, but it's chaos and it's bad chaos. That assumption is not only held by people who consider themselves conservative, 
I would say that that assumption is held by a huge amount of people, maybe the majority of people in the world today. You take away authority and you get chaos. Um, because otherwise you would have people not watching things like The Walking Dead. Because that whole thing, all zombie movies are based on the idea that once society collapses, you just have chaos. Now that, when you, when you watch those and you're like, yep, that, that people are assholes, that's, that's exactly what's gonna happen. Even if you consider yourself the biggest goddamn hippie on the planet, you are being conservative in that mindset. Um, which is interesting to note that so many people have that, have that view. Well, it's, it's the reason why conservatism is, although it's unpopular today, it still can't be chucked out. Oh yeah, and it will it's, always it, be it's there. It's such, it will always be there. It's such a powerful expla- explainer of human behavior and it's packaging of assumptions around that behavior um, is fits in very well with the way politics is run. Yeah. And yeah. has been run historically. Um, I think it's safe to say that conservatism as an ideology is historically, uh, it's impervious to historical change. Yeah. It will always be relevant. Well, that's, see, that's, yeah, it, it will always be relevant. I think the phrase impervious to historical change is, is a little bit, uh, we, we get somebody being like, hey, what? Because conservatism is also very good at adapting. Because this brings us to our second assumption of conservatism. And this one is a little bit difficult for people to grasp because it sounds so crazy. But it's it's the academic assumption that basically human beings have been around for so long now that everything, every problem that we have encountered already has a solution. So when we're dealing with socioeconomic issues, when we're dealing with how should we distribute wealth when we're dealing with any any social political issue that we may come up against we already have the solutions to those all we have to do is look back far enough and and we'll find them and the idea is and this is something that Edmund Burke kind of explored as well and he said that if you if you were to take somebody from the modern era which to him was you know not so modern but <laughs> and plop <laughs> them back into ancient Rome and he would find them dealing with the very same issues that we're dealing with today. You know, oh, we, how, you know these poor people on the street and uh, we need to get running water to the populace. And, uh, you know, how do we make sure that our politics is legitimate and, you know, logistical issues of politics that they would also be dealing with and that human beings historically already have the solutions to this. But with that comes the assumption that if we need if that we shouldn't necessarily be looking forward creating new things for problems that we have today we should be looking back that we should be uh, and because of that because those the history contains answers for our current predicaments we should preserve and conserve our history we should make we should understand and this is for instance american conservatism and i think something that's very religiously conservative is the idea that the family is the foundation of society um, and in America, especially the nuclear family is, is the foundation of society. And we need to preserve that because if, if, if the family starts to corrupt, then society starts to corrupt. And if society corrupts, then you have chaos. So this is one of the reasons why conservatives are so very weary to get in, involved with things that are, um, you know, a, a, a threat to the family. For instance, legalizing homosexual marriage or a whole bunch of other things abortion things like that that's why they're very reluctant to get into that now i i feel like somebody might shout at me this is we're not saying that these are necessarily good or bad assumptions we're saying these are the assumptions and the policies that they lead to but also this leads to something that's interesting to me is that conservatism is natural to human beings um it's a it's, it's the way that human beings work. As we get older, we want to preserve what's gone behind us. And this, you'll see this, you know, for our listeners who are in their mid, early to mid twenties, you know, they'll be like, fuck the system. Yeah. Anarchy. It's all cool. <laughs> when you get into your thirties, you're like, Hmm, maybe I should work within the system to make change. And by the time you're in your sixties, you're like, Hey, you kids, fuck you. Fucking welfare assholes. So take, <laughs> get off my lawn. Goddamn kids. Um, and oftentimes it means that what, conservatives are looking back at is a fabrication it's a idealized version of the past and this happens a lot you'll see 
for instance, uh, when people say like, oh, things were so much better in the 1950s. Well, it's like, yeah, better for you if you're a, if you're a white guy or a white person. Maybe not so good for, you know, black people in South Africa or in, in America. Um, you know, but they, that stuff tends to get cut out. The bad things get removed and you have a glorified version of the past, which can be, it's, it's natural to human beings and it's not necessarily bad, but it also has the possibility to be very bad when we consider things like, uh, Third Reich Germany. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it can be taken to extremes like that and um, the past can be glorified uh, and it's not helpful to paint over the mistakes made in the past because while it's useful to learn uh, lessons from the past, um, those mistakes that were made in the past need to need to be highlighted so that they aren't repeated. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's something that conservatism needs to work on. That's something that conservatives need to take very seriously that if they're going to defend these inherited institutions and customs, um, then they need to work out what the what problems came with those institutions and customs and why they why they grew and how they did change. Mm. Um, when when I say you know when I said earlier and here's my little backtrack um, when I said earlier that conservatism is impervious to historical change, it's precisely because it's I said it because precisely it's it's able to adapt. Yes. Um, because it's not against change per se. If it mm. were, if it said, if it said all change is bad, then of course it's going to fail and it's going to die. Mm. Um, but because it believes in adaptation inherently, it it welcomes adaptation, but in a in a piecemeal progressive sense, mm. in a very um, experiential sense mm. that takes things very slowly. If with that at the heart of conservatism is what makes it so difficult for it to be wiped away um, in history. The the, this, there's another narrative that I think conservatives fear, and you know, all, for the sake of this podcast, it's 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 easier to simplify one's political views, um, you know, mine into one one camp and say that I'm a I'm a conservative. Mm. But I know that the the the, the, the areas in which I am, I do consider things in a conservative manner, it is quite obvious how afraid people are of. The metaphysical abstractions, because there's been such a time-honored um, development and the time-honored establishment of known institutions and of visible institutions, such as the state and the church and the family, these things that have been around for centuries, perhaps even millennia, and you know the family going back as long as you know we've been around, mm. um, makes the progression, especially the modern liberal. Uh, in, in the neoliberal or the uber-liberal progression of that, of certain values into metaphysical abstractions, it, entirely fearsome. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're believing in anymore. And what ends up happening is, and this it can even happen to liberals, is they end up believing in nothing. or They end up arguing for nothing, as if nothing were something to be argued for. Mm. And this we can see, in a condensed example, you see this in moral relativism, mm. where the the strong argument that cultural context matters in the application of universal morality mm. gets taken to the extreme where you end up saying that there is no universal morality because cultural context reigns supreme. Mm. So n- you can be brought up in any cert- in any cultural situation in, in any different society that could justify any different mo- uh, moral indifference, and therefore there is no moral objectivity. That's a, that's the kind of metaphysical abstraction that that conservatives fear. Mm. That there is a that there is a belief in a nothing, mm. and that um, that vacuum, that void, I think, come is gently, not always, but can be seen, um, or not seen, can be perceived in the spread of new ideas like globalization, free trade, mm. um, you know, other ideals like unending peace and uh, all the um, you know. Ma- in very real terms, say, for example, the United States having a peace agreement or um, successful peace negotiations with Iran, it just sounds too unfamiliar. Yes. Yeah. There's too much change there. That um, Obviously, a conservative would be like, no, we still need to be suspicious of Iran. Mm. We still need to uphold um, very strict regulations and sanctions against them. Um, and so you can see the, the arm wrestle between, these, between the, liberal, the liberal camp and the conservative camp 
still going on in today's politics. And what's what's really interesting is that for for people who are listening to this podcast who identify with either side, this conflict is necessary. You cannot ever yeah. have either side winning because it's this conflict that drives society forward. Because, I mean, there's a phrase that I love to use all the time, which is today's conservative is yesterday's liberal. You know, the founding fathers, if you brought the, of America, no, fuck you. I'm not going to do America anymore. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's look at a, a history that I am familiar with, which is South African history. Um, Nelson Mandela himself would be considered a huge liberal in the 1970s. I mean, the guy was so liberal, he was pretty much, he was almost an anarchist. He was very, very left-leaning. He was going full-on communism. He was going full-on socialism. Um, He was incredibly liberal. And once he got, once he got into, well, obviously also once he spent 27 years in jail, and once he got into government, got into politics, he realized how necessary the history and the, 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 the history that had built up the institutions of the government were. You can't just wipe the slate clean. You have to have these, you know, the building blocks might be slightly corrupt, but they're better than nothing. And so yes. he realized that it's better to build on a foundation that you know works rather than build something from scratch that might fall apart one day. And so you can see this, this move that Nelson Mandela made throughout his life. Now, you would never call Nelson Mandela a conservative, but you can see him moving towards the conservative and becoming more central as time goes on. And yeah. and that's what happens, you know, in many situations is that, you know, you have a, a you have kind of a revolutionary idea. You establish a new form of government. That government becomes the status quo. Then that status quo needs to be protected. And the people protecting it are acting conservatively. Absolutely. It's a very powerful statement to say yeah. that today's uh, cons- conservatives is yesterday's liberals. And because the ideas that come from the past, the, the ideas that come from past change become established and they become the subject of preservation mm-hmm. and so become um, ins- institutionalized and established in, in the minds of the people who lived back then. And so that becomes the new conservative. Mm. Um, it's a very useful way of explaining the... The, the trajectory of political change um, through the through the, the the lenses of these two ideologies. Yeah. But to to transfer, in fact, before we transfer a little bit, because um, I want to talk about the other values of conservatism that are are shared with liberals, and so that we can see where liberalism came from and how it was born. Um, what are some of the other examples that we can that we can pull out of? popular culture that have um they can rep- that have represented this change of liberalism becoming today's conservatism well i think uh there's a lot of stuff that has slowly happened um for instance any when you see movies that are are uh demanding liberty um liberty and equality have become conservative Values. Um, I see. I don't know. If, I don't know if, that, if that's. Ne- but from a very academic standpoint, they have become the status quo. We don't fight um, to to justify liberty and equality anymore. Now we fight to instill liberty and equality. We say that this is the way it should be. There is no argument anymore. Everybody should be free to do to pursue what they want, and everybody should be equal to do what they you know to do to pursue the life they want. Those are. Now, although they came out of liberalism, they are conservative in that we need to preserve that kind of thing. And then, but you see, you see movies like, for instance, anything by Jerry Bruckheimer, for instance. So like, I think a good one is, uh, Con Air, which is a, a funny movie in that you, you see this guy who is a discharged army ranger. He's played by Nicolas Cage. And, um, you know, so you can already see the military background there. And he, he's sent to prison on a 10 year sentence for manslaughter for using excessive force on a guy who was attempting to assault his pregnant wife. So he's like already up in there fucking protecting the family. He's, he's using his, his rights to, 
to to defeat the man kind of thing. But then when he's caught, he acquiesces because he knows that the system is more important than him and he goes to prison. But when prisoners try and then take over the plane that they're on, he one by one defeats these prisoners in the name of, you know, justice and freedom and things. And he's he's a conservative hero. He's he's protecting the system. He's protecting the status quo. And in the beginning of the movie, he's protecting the American family as well, which I think is is interesting. But another... You know what else is conservative? Is fucking Lord of the Rings. Independence Day. No, dude, Lord of the Rings is is super conservative. That whole movie, although that trilogy of movies is, let's keep things the way they are. Let's reinstall a king in Gondor. Let's go back to when everything is about our stuff is shit now. It used to be so much better when we had a king. Things were great when we had a king. Um, the Shire is awesome because it's it embraces these like old school values, which we know that Tolkien fucking loves. He loved that English fucking old school shit, man. He was like, yeah, everybody <laughs> should be a fucking potato farmer. We should be living in the hills. It's going to be fucking cool. Okay. But then these two like really smart, intelligent fucking guys come in and want to change the whole world. One of them does it through industry and builds a goddamn army by cutting down all the trees. And the other one raises a army of the undesirables of the country and starts ravaging the central (laughs) kingdom. And the only way to protect against that is to go back to, you know, embrace these old school values. Denethor, I mean, actually, fuck, this is the best metaphor for conservative values ever. Denethor, in the books, he wants to negotiate with Sauron. He wants to use the eye, not the eye, what are they called? Um, the Palantia, to negotiate. He wants to have a conversation with Sauron. And Boromir, Denethor's son, he wants to use the One Ring to fight Sauron. So he wants to use the new technology against Sauron. But the wise people in that society, no, you can't do that. We have to fight them with what, what what works. We need the king back in Gondor. And Gondor, you know, everybody's running away until the king comes back. And then it's like, yeah, now we've got a king. Fuck you, Sauron. <laughs> and how? who wins? A middle class guy who's essentially just a farmer. He's nobody special. He wins by taking that technology and shoving it up the guy's ass. <laughs> And that's how he wins. Fuck, I, Tolkien was conservative to the max. <laughs> Absolutely. No, he definitely was. But also look at the alliance of, um, of ideologies around that. Um, so you see like the world of men established in hierarchy and tradition and around strength. I mean, how much law, um, and not L-A-W, L-O-R-E. Yeah. Um, Tolkien poured into the men of Middle Earth. Mm. That, that the human society were physically represented by their greatness. Their grandeur was illustrated in, their, in, how, tall their, in how tall they were. Yeah. Their height had a, carried a huge significance in their moral righteousness. Yeah. Um, and that you know, obviously came, also came from um, him being, also being a religious man, um, a Catholic if I'm not mistaken. And the, so the, the law that um, Tolkien poured into the, the humans, the human race in Middle Earth, f- um, was used to form an alliance with other traditional societies. So you see the dwarves who were long forgotten, who had not been restored to their, um, historical grandeur because they did not, they were not free to inhabit the Lonely Mountain after the Battle of Five Armies when the, when the Hobbit ended, were forgotten. Yeah. Uh, they were not intended to be, uh, a primary race in the Lord of the Rings. Mm. And actually, it was supposed to be the elves, and that's why we see more of Elrond and Galadriel mm. um, and uh, coming playing a, a greater role. But still, Gimli, the son of Glóin, you know, he carried with him the the foundations of a, of a past society, and yeah. people bought into that. And, and he was represented as a hero in that story mm. because you know, they they favored um, their own sort of industry, um, but it was an old traditional sort of family type of structured economy where everybody. Uh, work together in creating the same resource mm. rather than um, allowing sort of some free market competition. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they just sought gold for gold's sake. They didn't seek it as a currency. Yeah. And and then we see this unlikely hero in Gimli forming an unlikely friendship with an elf, someone, an elf, someone who was seemingly, um, you know, 
castigated an, uh, and a historical enemy of the dwarves. The, mm. the elves were never to be befriended. But yet, because of the rise of this new powerful liberal industrialist in the in the East, they had to find some common ground in their conservative values. Mm. They wanted to preserve, in the elves' case, the forest, the mm. forest of Lothlorien, the forest of Mirkwood, um, or the high society in Lothlorien. Mm. And those types of sets, setups um, between the different el- different elvish clans is what um, drew the, the dwarf, the human, and the elves together in order to form mm. you know, the, the fellowship of the ring with Gandalf and, uh, and lead a fight against the industrialist East, yeah. which so many people maintain is a metaphor for, uh, for, for Germany at the, in, in, at the late 1930s. Mm. Um, and could even be seen read in, say, the late 50s as a writing against uh, the Japanese. Yeah. I mean, it could be seen as any. I mean, you could use that as an analogy for any conservative group fighting against a non. I mean, you could use it as an analogy for the fucking Cold War if you wanted. Um, you know, America versus. Actually, but, but let's go back to that. Let, let's finish off this conservative section with the, with the metaphor you used so well in the last episode of how. Conservatives are painted by liberals as zombies, mm. um, because although I think we accidentally discovered Lord of the Rings to be the most conservative <laughs> popular culture out there, um, and the books even more so. Uh, but it's still <laughs> this <laughs> this illustration of of conservatives being mindless consumers and uh, and followers of the you know of the grand of the great political leader um, or some higher ideal. It just it had me tickled pink when you told me about it. And that's and, and that's I think makes a nice transition into our discussion uh, into now you know defining what liberalism is. And that's and that's because liberalism is you know developed as a reaction. It was a reactionary thing first, and it didn't start out as liberalism. I mean, originally it was conceptualized as idealism. Um, especially on an international relations level. But what you touched on with Lord of the Rings, especially in terms of social hierarchies, is that during the 17 and 1800s, society was incredibly stratified. And the belief, there wasn't any of this belief that if you worked hard and you, and you kept going and you, you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the belief was that you, you were born into a specific place and you stayed there. And, you know, when you died, if you had lived a good life, you would go to heaven. But there was no moving up a class. Uh, there was, you know, there was none of this. You, you needed to stay where you belonged. And with the advent of industrialization and the massive increase of wealth that that allowed, and I don't want to get into a huge freaking economics history lesson, but basically you suddenly had a group of people who were now middle class whose affluence allowed them to sometimes be a lot more wealthy than the aristocrats who stood above them, but they were denied the political freedoms. And they started, and there were a lot of other people who started to look at things like humanism, started to see like, wait, hold on a second. How can we justify the fact that human beings are stratified when there doesn't seem to be any reason, except for the fact that the people on the top are telling us that that's the reason? Um, you know, how, how can we justify the fact that people aren't equal? How can we justify the fact that people aren't allowed access to the same rights and privileges? And this was where the beginnings of rights talk started to come in. Because at the, at the beginning, we didn't discuss rights. What, what rights do you have? No, you, the, uh, uh, the true conservative says you have the rights that the state gives you. You are not entitled to any rights necessarily. And so slowly but surely you had the birth of liberalism and idealism. And, uh, you know, they're, they're very merged. But they have a fundamental assumption in that per- people will achieve their best. I mean, the basic assumption of liberalism is people will achieve their best and the best possible life for themselves if they are afforded the freedom. And if you guys remember, we did a, a conversation on positive and negative freedom a while ago. So, um, but the idea is that to give them all the opportunities and freedoms that you can so that they can choose the best life. It is not up to the state. It's not up to somebody else to choose your life for you. That also comes in an assumption that is the antithesis 
of conservatism, and that is the belief that human beings are deep down inside inherently good. Firstly, that they're rational actors, which would be which would bleed in from economics later on. Um, and maybe it came up as well from Aristotle, Plato. I mean, this is why liberalism started out during the Renaissance, when those writings were rediscovered. It's that human beings are rational, they are kind, they are charitable, they are good. And if left to their own devices in the state of nature that Thomas Hobbes saw so violently, that they wouldn't start killing each other. They would immediately start to form groups and start to help each other out. And that means that human beings are inherently good. Now, that's why this was called idealism, because it had a a very beautiful ideal of what the world was. But the other assumption that they make is that that people are equal that there is no fundamental difference between human beings, that maybe we're born into different places, we have different opportunities, but at the end of the day, human being, one human being's value is equal and comparable to another human being's value. Obviously, this took a while to extend to uh, other human ethnic groups, but at least for the beginning, white people, and at the even earlier to that, white men at least, were considered equal. And obviously this led to a whole bunch of new political changes, people demanding rights and privileges and things like that. There, yeah, there are many things there that... Um, well, that was a very brief I, history. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many things there that I agree with. Um, and obviously it, it induces that conundrum for, for me as it does for any person of how conservative are you really or how liberal are you really? Because there are obviously tenets from both ideologies that, that one would agree with. But to not make it too personal, and to I just want to draw on, I want to make reference to conservatism insofar as it shared or it gave birth to many of these ideas um, and tenets that became far more entrenched and far more institutionalized with the liberal movement. Mm. But they were born out of the idea of the individual when conservatives like Edmund Burke and, and Thomas Hobbes were trying to... Um, construct a new order and that new order was to protect the individual so when conservatives say we believe in a state or we believe in a nation or we believe in society or community or family or church or whatever it is whatever social construct we're choosing to believe in as conservatives to preserve a certain set um, of values at the heart of those values in conservative ideology is the preservation of the value of the individual so we often associate individualism and individual liberty with liberal ideology, but it came from conservatism. It came from the, the, it was just applied in a different way. That in conservatism, because there was the assumption that if left to their own devices, humans would eventually engage in violent conflict, they constructed, they used the social constructs that they had. They used the state, they used law. They used um, the military and families and communities to protect themselves, to protect each other in order to um, preserve the, the individuals and, and, their, and their rights. It's just that when, the, when, when that, that wasn't done away with, that was never thrown out at all when the liberal movement, uh, when the liberal ideology was, was being born and was growing up. Um, in fact, it just it, it honed in on that. It took that and it, it exaggerated it and it really made it its own um, and actually did and changed the assumption about if we protect these people, if we truly believe in the in the value of the individual, we, then then what's to say we're going to fight with each other? We, if we know that we are um, valuable in ourselves, we are surely going to recognize that in other people. And that's why if left to our own devices, we're not going to fight with them. We see them as an end in themselves, that they should be treated with respect and dignity and equality. And that's where the the values of human rights became exaggerated. That's where um, the freedom of speech and the rule of law became exaggerated. And that's where the exercising of individual freedom became exaggerated. And so this idea of individualism became one of individuality, that it became a good in itself that was adopted um, more starkly by the by the liberal uh, ideology, and it's from that point that we start to see policies um, 
like that that in that favor co- uh, cooperation, especially international relations, or we see policies that try to protect the dignity of individuals at the lowest levels of society, um, such as in you know in welfare states or welfare democracies. Um, you, there's not necessarily a belief that the state needs to exist or needs to exist to a large degree, but that if the state is going to be there, that it, it, it's only that it only exists in order to protect the rights of the individual and to enhance their, their, their welfare. Yeah, okay, so I agree with you in general as that that is what conservatism became, but I think that you have your history a little bit mixed up because I disagree with you um, from a historical perspective and, I mean, just tracking the growth of these ideologies. I mean, because you wouldn't have defined conservatism prior to the creation of liberalism given that there was no reason to define it as you had nothing to define it against. But in the beginning, I mean, I'm talking very early days where, you know, maybe right in the beginning of the Renaissance, before humanism, before the, the very idea of the individual as being important came up, from a political perspective, I don't think that the individual was that important. The the creation of the, the state and the political power, that was what was important. Now, when we get to Burke, and in Burke's time, we already start, we already have uh, idealists and conservatives, or, you know, Tories and, and, and Whigs and all the people who are conflicting against each other. I still think that in Burke's, I'm uh, not Burke, uh, Burke and Hobbes's time, we're looking at a, at, a, at a place where if the question was, what is more important, the individual or the society? There is no question. The question is resolved already. Society supersedes the individual. The, the, the protection of the society supersedes the rights of the individual, hands down, every time. And that, but that was then. That was, you know, and that was the conservative notion. That was what was being fought against. The, the individual needed to be moved into the center of politics. Now, that's why I made it so emphatic that we say that yesterday's liberal is today's conservative because from a historical perspective it didn't take very long for the rights of once the rights of man came out you know once thomas paine wrote the rights of man once you had the uh, declaration of independence uh, once you had the um you know the french revolution and once you had the the creation of parliament in england all of these things happened very fast which started to acknowledge the the, the importance of the individual and it also didn't take very long for the conservatives of the time to die out or absorb that idea once that idea was absorbed then i agree with you yes your conservative values became about the individual but from a conservative perspective it was like what is the best form of the state that needs to be preserved in order to help the individual from a liberal point of view it was how can we maximize the liberties that any individual can enjoy yes i no i agree with you i I think that historical analysis is accurate more accurate yeah i just wanted Um, to make the historical trajectory because i think it's 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 dangerous to say something you know like the the respect for individual liberty came out of conservatism because i think as a beginning that was a revolutionary idea that was the birth of liberalism and the birth of idealism no i don't think it's that dangerous i just don't think it was used in those terms yeah. back then no um, no I, I agree society no, the the social constructs that were used by the can we call them the fathers of conservative ideology um once the once the revealing of the texts of you know ancient greek writers and especially the idea of uh, rationalism and rationality was being used to, because you know, con- conservative writers were still writing at a time when they wanted things to change. Mm. Um, mm. It's just that they, when in changing things, they wanted to know what to conserve. Yeah. That was the focus. It wasn't the focus of what exactly are we going to be throwing away. It's, everything's pretty much going out the window. But we're not going to. Um, we want to filter through that stuff and find what we're going to hang on to in order to form something new. Um, what is it about the human person that we value? Mm. And although they didn't use terms like human rights and individual liberties or, or freedom, it was the the construct of the state and the rule of law and the free market, for example, all came out of the idea that they would serve as means to preserve the, the value of the individual. 
Um, so individualism was still has its roots in conservatism. It's um, I wouldn't say it's dangerous to say. I just say it, it probably wasn't the language being used at that time. It was. It became far more popular. Those terms became far more popular with the liberal ideology, but um, but they didn't come up with that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose you can say that it has its roots in um, conservatism, given that liberalism itself has its roots has its roots in conservatism. Um, you know, just as you could also make the argument that communism, uh, you know, has its roots in capitalism, given that it was defined as against it. Um, but yeah, I, I see your point. Um, I think it's a, but I think it's a historical debate that's not necessarily so important for this. Um, but those, are, I mean, do, do you think that, I mean, those are the two fundamental assumptions of liberalism. And, uh, you know, as issues came up in society, the two camps started to take separate issues. You know, they started, because conservatives today in America and in the West, in the West in general, which is where conservatism tends to thrive, although ISIS is a conservative political movement. It's in fact it's so conservative, it's fascist. Um, the yeah, the, it claims the, to be a, it claims to be revolutionary. It claims to be a revolutionary force, but it's actually trying to. Um, it's it's reestablishing the caliphate. It is a conservative tradition, yeah. and this is, you know, and I think that this is you know this is where the conversation needs to go. When we start to paint the two sides in different colors. And we do this with, um, with, uh, with popular culture. And this is where that, um, that metaphor that we were discussing yesterday of conservatives are zombies and, uh, liberals are vampires, you know, conservatives are zombies because they're considered to be mindless. They're mindless drones who just follow the leader and do whatever they're told. Liberals are vampires because they have no respect for traditions, they have no respect for the old world. Um, they they've been born into this new world, and but what they do is they don't actually provide anything beneficial. They all they do is cons- is is basically suck the life out of what was once good, kind of thing. Um, and I mean, you can stretch that metaphor <laughs> as far as you'd like, but that's what happens when you malign these two issues. Is you, I think you start to see the worst the worst of them. And, you know, when you, when you read something like Lord of the Rings, you can kind of see Tolkien's, Tolkien's point. I mean, Gondor is fucking awesome. The Shire is great. Um, you know, preserving that is, is not necessarily a bad thing. But obviously, obviously Tolkien painted the liberal industrialists as being really, really bad. Now, let's take Lord of the Rings and replace Sauron and Saruman with a liberal a, you know, a real liberal, a real liberal avatar, Lord of the Rings, and you took out Sauron and Saruman, but replaced them with uh, the the free humans from Zion, from the Matrix. Now, those are fucking liberals. They're liberals ah, to the yes. max. They are all about, you know, man, you've got to free your mind from the cage <laughs> that is holding you back. Okay, the, the, the human being needs to be unleashed from whatever cage society puts around them and, 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 and be free to experience their own, their own fulfillment. Um, but at the same time, look at the people in Zion. Like they fucking love technology. They love to like improvise and build stuff. And in fact, there's that, there's that very, um, it's a bit of clanky dialogue, but there's a discussion that Neo has with the, uh, one of the councilmen in Zion where they're talking about using the machines. And he's like, you know, what is the difference between these machines and those machines? And he's like, well, the the difference is that these machines help us. We use them to benefit our own lives. Now, that's, that's, I mean, I can't think of a more liberal thing. We use nature. We use the reality around us to make our lives better. Now, put those two into a universe together. And you've got two avatars on both the good sides of each other. And I can totally imagine fucking Neo in his glasses with Morpheus going to Gondor and speaking <laughs> to Aragorn and being like, Aragorn, like, we need your resources so that we can build a human utopia. And Aragorn would be like, but we, you know, we're pretty happy already. Like, life's all right. So it's not too bad. And, but they wouldn't fight with each other. There would be no need for conflict because I think that those two perfect representations of each other's ideologies 
would have a fairly good conversation, even though they might not agree with each other. And, you know, I could see the guys from Zion being like, well, we're used to living in a blasted wasteland anyway, so we'll just take Mordor. Like, that, that's fine. <laughs> um, and uh, if you guys need some tech, you know, because you're probably dying from fucking scurvy, because you live in a, how about some vitamin C tablets? Because that, that you know, that'll help. <laughs> but you see... You see what happens when you malign these two sides and when you don't understand them. And I think that that's really what raised an interesting point in this recent election. Donald Trump's slogan, let's make America great again. That's a conservative slogan straight away. But I I almost feel bad saying that that's a conservative slogan because although I consider myself a liberal, like one of my best friends, Brock, and a whole bunch of other of my friends are conservatives. Now, I don't want to lump oh, no. Donald the Trump heresy. You know, I don't want to, you I don't sold want to out, lump Peter. him in because it's terrible. And then, but then also you get um, you get Hillary's often saying America is already great and we can make it better. That's a very liberal slant. But yeah. you know, Hillary has been known to be fairly conservative in her viewpoints. Um, yeah. So, and I think that that's this, this is what happened is that the liberal agenda has kind of just slated off the conservatives and said. Uh, you guys are dumb. We're not listening to you anymore because you're a bunch of fucking zombies, and we're really cool Twilight vampires, man. We're just like no, 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 no. Let's let let let's retract that. We know the Twilight vampires aren't cool. Let's think more about Celine from Underworld. That's a cool vampire. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But I mean, like Twilight vampires are considered cool by the people who like Twilight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which aren't people, so <laughs> their views don't count. They don't. They don't count. Yeah. Like you know the vampires from. Listen um, <laughs> to the conservative in me coming up. <laughs> that I can't. Yeah, vampires from Underworld, which are very cool. Or vampires from the Anne Rice novels, uh, which are, you know, all very, like, sexy and cool, and they're loners, they're outside of society. But, you know, when, when we don't want to live like that. We don't want to live with vampires. We don't want to live in that kind of society. We want to live with people. But, and we don't want to live with zombies if you had either. to choose, if you had to choose between a world of zombies, zombie conservatives... <laughs> And vampire liberals, in which world would you rather live? Can I be a vampire liberal in a world of zombie conservatives? Because then I... No, because then you'd have to feed on zombies. That's disgusting. No, there'll be some humans around. I'm sure I could find... No, a no, no. no there's like... only, only <laughs> vampires and zombies. Yeah. Well, how are vampires going to survive in the only vampire world? They can't feed off each other. Then they turn into those weird things from uh, Dusk Till Dawn. Or Daybreakers, sorry. <laughs> Day... <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's, uh... But yeah, I mean, like, I think I would rather be a vampire. Vampires are cooler than zombies. Although you probably have friends in the zombie horde. You're just like, oh. how, how about, we, how about, how about we, 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 we make it interesting. We make it the, the vampire zombies from I Am Legend. Yeah. I'll be those guys are forming their own society. And that's actually, you know what? That's a really good, another good example is, is, um, in our first episode, we discussed the, um, the alternate ending to I Am Legend. And Will Smith, in that movie, is an arch-conservative. He's attempting to bring back the world that was. Whereas the vampire fact, zombies that, are... are um, Will, Smith's, Will Smith's character is, is, a, is a very good example of t- today's conservative is yesterday's liberal. Yeah, exactly. He's, 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 uh, he's trying to bring back the old liberal world. But the, that world is gone. <laughs> Fuck you, Will Smith. That, it's us vampire it, zombies it, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you created both. You created the worst and the worst kinds of liberals and the worst kinds of conservatives. And, and as, now you've got seekers to deal with. Yeah, but as we know from the alternative ending, those vampire zombies are not mindless. They are. No. In fact, that's so. That's also that's also awesome because Will Smith, as a conservative, doesn't see the value that they are bringing. He doesn't see their importance until they like scream at him and make him see that they are people and that they are trying to build a new society. And only then is he like, okay, I'm sorry. In the alternative ending, which never came out, because America can't handle that shit, man. They just can't <laughs> open their minds, sheeple. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've gone quite far into this, but there are, I mean, obviously, there, there's huge scope for more discussion on this. And I think we'll probably bring in uh, some more ideas of, of things that were added on because we need to also eventually discuss why conservatism is so heavily linked with free trade economics. Um, what 
does left and right actually mean? In terms, you know, those are big things. You know, what is the worst case scenario of liberalism, and what is the worst case scenario of conservatism? Conservatism. Yeah, um, you fuck me up. We could do. <laughs> yeah, we yeah we could do a whole episode on conservative and ideal, um, and idealistic foreign policies. Yeah, and we didn't even get to our ideal societies. We got to our ideal popular culture characters or creatures mm. but um we we promised we'd talk about the I, the liberal society of hogwarts and the conservative um society of uh what do we do uh, the walking dead what? yeah i mean well, we did discuss that a bit i think that this uh, probably gives us space for another episode on like we've discussed the foundation but now we need to go deeper and discuss the uh you know future. We'll, the future and and how how these two things have have created and what they stand for now and um because uh, you know as i said you know people get confused between what is left and right they, i don't care what they what, what they think left is as long as they know that i'm right <laughs> okay um guys i think that we are going to end it off there we've had a very productive discussion i think on on this i'm um, hopefully giving you guys some insight into what conservatism and, and liberalism um <laughs> I think that we probably will do a part two to this uh, episode, uh, but keep listening, and we'll, we're going to be going quite deep into a whole bunch of these ideologies. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F-L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.